Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Welcome back to the Letter from Ireland show, Series 2, Episode 12. In the show, we like to visit the places of your Irish ancestors and bring their stories to life. Before we start, do remember any resources or references we mention in the episode can be found in the show notes at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 212. Would you believe this is actually our final episode in series two? And it's a really exciting one. We have a very special show in store for you today because we travel across the world to Australia on the Irish Ancestry Trail. Let's begin with our first port of call in Sydney, New South Wales. We landed in sunny Sydney, having left a snowy Ireland 24 hours earlier, and we were lucky to get there. But that trip for us by plane, while quite arduous, I don't think it was a patch on what our ancestors had to endure. They had six-month-long voyage in rough seas and very little of the home comforts, I'm sure. Perhaps the most difficult aspect of their travel at that time was that our ancestors were venturing into the unknown, and in many of their cases, it was a journey not of their choosing. For us, it was a different story, as we were being introduced and welcomed back to Australia by many family members whose great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and actually some people whose parents had only just left for Australia in recent years. The first person I'd like to introduce you to on our Australian Ancestry Trail is Anne Keating from Brisbane, New South Wales. Now Anne very kindly travelled down to meet us in Sydney Harbour. And you must imagine, while we were chatting, the backdrop to our chat was the jaw-dropping view of the Sydney Opera House and Bridge. And I must say, I really only felt we'd arrived in Australia when I got to see that view. Here Anne tells us about Sydney Cove, where many emigrant ships over the centuries made landfall, and the early emigrants, many convicts, got their first glimpse of the new world. We're here on the next step of our Irish Ancestry Trail and we're in Australia and I cannot believe I'm standing in front of that iconic building there behind us. Mm -hmm. Thank you Anne Keating for coming here to meet us. I know you don't live in Sydney. Where, where did you come from to meet us here? I, I live in Brisbane um, and that's um, a couple of hundred miles to the north of here in Queensland. So it takes, it takes about an hour and a half on the plane to get here. Well, I appreciate you making the effort. No and can you tell us a little bit around about this place here? Because yes. I know where we are is really iconic. Yes. Um, and especially Sydney Cove over there. Yeah, that's right. Um, just here, Sydney Cove behind me, is where the first fleet arrived in 1788, the first European settlement on, in this country. Britain was looking for a place to, to dump its criminals, English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh. They, you know, the so prison system at the time was overloaded, was overloaded yeah, and yeah. they needed somewhere. And somewhere on the other side of the world seemed like a good idea, out of sight. <laughs> Out of mind. So the motley crew arrived and settled here. That's right. That's oh. right. And then 
after oh, some time they needed another convict settlement and they developed Moreton Bay to the north and Moreton Bay settlement is what is now Brisbane. Oh right, so that was Where, the so, so you are now living in what I'm was that living, original settlement? Right. Uh huh. Yeah, um, so that was developed for the really tough, hardened criminals. Okay. Yeah, very, very isolated from, from this settlement. But by the time we got to the 1840s, Convict transportation to New South Wales had virtually ceased, but somebody came up with the idea of bringing out some convicts and letting them go because really this colony needed labour. So they needed people. They needed yeah. people. We had free settlers by then and they needed labour to work their properties. So if you came here as a free settler, you were free to start working, yes. develop your own life. That's right. And I imagine yeah. the idea of having land and a place to live for people was very appealing in exactly. the 1840s and yes, later. Yes, exactly. And, so, and did you have a relation that came out around that time? I did. The first, well, my third great-grandfather was Patrick Feeney and he is the, the one that's the furthest back among my ancestors, and my Irish ancestors. And where in Ireland did Patrick Feeney come from? He came from County Longford. And what um, year was it that he came out here? He came in 1850. Okay. And he was, he'd had a career in the British Army and he was then a pensioner in 1849 and they were looking for pensioner guards to bring these convicts out to Australia. So in other words, free trip to Australia, you can bring your wife and your family um, and then you can settle there when you get there. So he did bring his he wife and his children? He did. And where did they settle when they came here? Um? Well, they, they had the choice to get off the boat at Moreton Bay or to come on to Sydney and yes. they got off at Moreton Bay. So they were up that direction? They were up there. But he died 13 years later in Maryborough, which is a couple hours drive to the north of Brisbane. So, you know, he'd had 20 years in the British Army, 22 years in the British Army, and his health wasn't good, you know, he was unfit for service. So, so he, he pensioned off pensioned the, age, the ripe old age of 37. My. 37. He was no longer any use to the British Army. Wow. Yeah, sad. I know that you're very interested in your Irish heritage and you've come to Ireland a few times, I haven't have. you? Yes. How did you find the difference between Ireland and Australia? Well, a lot of things the same. I felt very much at home there. Um, a lot of things familiar, but also, also a lot of strange things. Yeah. But. <laughs> Put it this way: um, once you get used to some of the quirky ways things work in Ireland, it's fine. <laughs> I could say the same about Australia. Okay. <laughs> so you know, Anne, an interesting thing came up in conversation yesterday when we were speaking to Linda Scott, mm -hmm. and she said she would like to meet one of her ancestors. And I wonder, who would you like to meet? Yeah. Well. I would love to meet the daughter of this Patrick Feeney that I've been talking about. His daughter Mary Jane came out as a child, a ten-year-old, with her family. And seven years later she's getting married here in Sydney. Aha! Uh -huh. um, she Point. puts her age down as 21, but really she's probably only 17. So you wonder what the story is. Did she have mum and dad's permission? You know, why was she getting married in a Presbyterian church when they were Catholic? 
these. Lots of questions I'd love to ask her. <laughs> so these are the mysteries, aren't they, that draws they us back to the heritage all the time That's and it. checking it out. That's it. Listen, Anne, thank you so much for coming here and meeting us. And um, I'll oh, always associate the Opera House with you now and your story. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thanks, Karina. Anne stayed with us as we found our feet and we spent an enjoyable few days exploring Sydney. We then took a trip to the Blue Mountains, up outside the city, to meet Linda and Lee Scott on their farm, where Scott still farms on the original homestead founded by his great-grandfather from County Tyrone. Here we are chatting, believe it or not, during a thunderstorm, the first rain seen in months. Listen carefully for the trick played by Lee's father on his brother Lloyd. Yeah, yeah. I'm here chatting with Lee and Linda Scott and we're sheltering. Now, believe it or not, we're actually in Australia on the <laughs> Irish Ancestry Trail and it's raining. <laughs> but here we are in the shelter of the house. Where, where are we, um, Linda? We're Where's this place We're at exactly? the Scott family house here at Meadow Flat, which is in the Blue Mountains, just at the top of the Great Dividing Range in New South Wales, Australia. Excellent. And who lived here? I know it's somebody related to Lee Scott. Yes. Yes. So, so Lee, your grandfather and your great-grandfather. Grandfather and great-grandfather. And your father and, as well. And father. Dad was, my dad was born here. So your dad was born in this house? Yep. Your grandfather was born here, yep. and your great grandfather was born here. No, the great grandfather was born in Ireland, and he came. Oh, so so we're back to the great grandfather in Ireland. And who who was that then? Um, William John Scott. So William John Scott, and they came from, I believe, was it Fermanagh, Tyrone? No, border. County Tyrone. County Tyrone. Yeah, yeah. Liz Lynn was what I heard. That's what on all oh, it says on all the records. On all the records. Yes. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about this firmly built house or what's left of it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still standing. <laughs> well, it's actually their old baker's oven where they used to bake their bread. The baker's oven? The baker's Which? oven. There's a little baker's oven around the other side there. Oh, here in the <coughs> back in the no, corner? No, no, around, around the other around side. The front. Yes. They had a big long hook, a bit of metal. They'd get the bread and scones and dampers. Yes. Put them on the tray and push them in with this hook. Then when they want to get them out, they pull them out with a hook. It's a bit like we make pizza today. Yeah, yeah. very <laughs> similar. 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 Yeah, and yeah. Linda was saying there was a well over There's here well as well. There. Yep. Is, is, is it just where it's covered with the? Uh, it goes down about 60 feet. Ah, I see. So and the... that uh, that actual well there, at least that's some old stables up here. Yeah. And my dad's brother Lloyd, which owned the places down here, he was always mucking around digging the well. They, they go to take the skins, fox skins, and things into town and rabbit skins to sell them. Then they come back home and dig another couple of foot in the well. And one day Dad said, I think the well's deep enough, Lloyd. They said, we should get in another six or eight feet, Mac. So Dad said, oh, righto. So while Lloyd was away with the rabbit skins, Dad went and got some, uh, an old brass doorknob off the stable and got a raft and rubbed it down the sides of the well. Yes. So when Lloyd came, and covered it over with a little bit of fresh dirt. So when Lloyd came back home from Ballas after selling the fox skins and rabbit skins, he's digging down, digging down. He said, oh, I struck gold. <laughs> <laughs> he really thought he struck gold, honestly. So he, put it in, he got it all put in the jar, and he went and somebody comes to Ballas, oh, come to Ballas at that time on a horse and cart. Uh-huh. He took it in and said, I got some, uh, got some gold. <laughs> said, Where did you find all that gold at? He said, oh, me and my brother have been digging a well on the family farm, and I found it in the well. As he's digging the well. And the Blake said to, uh, said to Lloyd, I think that's Phil's gold, they used to call it. Fool's gold, yeah. Phil's gold, and Dad said, no, it's bloody Phil's gold. <laughs> it's not Phil's gold, it's Phil's gold. And Dad never ever told him until that day, until they both died, or Lloyd died first, but uh, that's, what he, that's what he'd done. Oh, 
he never knew so all the time. It, no, he never ever told him. He wasn't going to. He thought he might have shot him. Oh, so you. <laughs> so he never told him. Wow. Yeah. So this this place has lots of memories, really, and stories, doesn't it, for you? Yeah, they did find some real gold in the bush up here. They said there's quite some old gold mines and diggies up in there. I actually found some stories that I was reading that um, William Scott and his brother Charles, Charles being the first one who um, came and pioneered this land, they were actually the first ones to... Um, do the gold mining, go, what do you call yeah, it? Well, panning for gold. Oh, panning, panning for gold. gold. Yeah, yeah. Um, up at Sunny Corner where they had the gold mines. And after that, it became a big thing and they had a huge gold mining area up here at Sunny Corner. But they were the first ones who started the gold mining. Wow. We don't know whether they ever found anything. Maybe that's how they bought all these blocks of land. Fantastic, yeah, maybe, exactly. <laughs> that, that's how they could afford the land. They used to ride the horse from here down to like Glen Davis, which is probably uh, 40, 45, 50 k's away from here, 45 k's. They'd ride the horses down and bring the carriages behind the horses. They'd cut eucalyptus. That's what that, that old square tank there. They used to bring back here and light a fire underneath them. Yes. And, and melt all the, all, get all the juice out of the eucalyptus. They oh, to, to get the juice out of the eucalyptus. Yeah, yeah. And sell it. Yeah. And sell the juice. Yeah, they used to be really good for colds and uh, horses when the horses got a cold. Oh, they okay. put a vaporizer thing, only a homemade vaporizer. The horse that breathe it in Beautiful the smell. It is a nice smell. So the hospitals, some hospitals use it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much, Lee, for uh, inviting us. And Linda, thanks for for, for having us here oh, on your farm, on thanks your farm you. that's been in the family for so long. Yeah. Thank oh, you yeah. so much. Yeah. You didn't say how long it is. Oh, 175 years oh, really? this year. Oh, really? Yes, it is. This, this block of land that we're on was first bought by John Hamilton, who was married to Jane Scott, and they bought this block of land as the first block of land on this ground um, in December 1843. So today we're in 2018, so the end of this year is 175 years that this land has remained in the, the Hamilton and Scott Scotch families. And there's modern day coming in on top yeah. of us now. Yeah, that's all right. yeah. <laughs> Just turn it off. Yeah. Thanks very much. Okay. It's been lovely being here. Oh, Thank you so much. It's given us your, a... Uh, who was, who's, uh, the, uh, what's the woman from Sydney? The one, uh, the funny one? Yeah. Not the, the relation. Uh, Nina? No. Yeah, what's she to us? I think she is your cousin. Yeah, one of our cousins, un unknown cousins, really. She rang one day and wanted to come up back to the farm. Yes. I come up the old cottage where she's yeah. she would have spent a lot of time up here, I suppose, in the young days. I said, that's no trouble. She got in the car and drove up here. And she got up here and the old, some of the old building was still here then. And she got out of the car. She said, do you mind if I collect something and take back to Sydney with me? I said, no, I said, feel free, take the tree, take this. I don't care what you take. <laughs> so she walked over and walked through these old bricks. She picked up a brick. So I'll leak they had different different shapes on them, some of these were different Because they're all handmade bricks. You yeah. can't so see. When we go back down to your mother's house for lunch, can I take a brick? I said, you come all the way from Sydney, you're going to take a brick back to Sydney? <laughs> I said, can't you find something better than that? She said, no. I said, what are you going to do with a brick? She takes them back and paints them and makes doorstops out of them so the door doesn't blow open the oh, wind. Oh, lovely. <laughs> so you're pretty easy to satisfy if you go back to Sydney with a brick. Thank you, okay. Beautiful old bricks. Beautiful yeah, bricks. Well, I'm not sure I'll take a brick back to Ireland with me, but <laughs> no. yeah. But no, no, thank no. you guys for having me here. Thank Thanks Thank so you. much. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Just watch where you're going, eh? Scott's accent there, folks, was a real challenge to my Irish ears. We bid farewell to the Scots and Anne Keating, and we flew Mike and I from Sydney to Hobart in the south of Tasmania, or as it was once formerly known. Van Diemen's Land. 
We then drove a few hours north to Launceston, where we were joined by Doug Barrett on his first visit back to the original Barrett farm overlooking the Tamar River. And standing there with Doug, we reminisce on his family connections to that farm. We're here on the Irish Australian Ancestry Trail and today we're meeting Doug Barrett. And Doug, you've driven us out from Launceston in Tasmania uh, to this wonderful farm here. So can you tell us why you brought us to this farm? Well, this is the, uh, the place where my great-grandfather settled on the eastern side of the Tamar River in, uh, in the 1830s. And uh, they came out from, there were two brothers, came out from Ireland. Where in Ireland did they come from? Uh, Sligo. And what did they do when they were in Ireland? What was their well, work that's, there? That's a bit of a mystery at the moment. We're not really certain. Um, there's rumours that they work for the, uh, the Sligo Harbour Trust. And uh, there's uh, also rumours that they're in the uh, Sligo Militia. Aha. Uh -huh. um, but nothing's been proven yet. So James Barris came out here and William and James settled on this land here. He settled on this land and... Uh, How big it, a farm was that at the time? It's a, a thousand acres. Wow, okay. And um, he uh, slowly cleared it by hand. He had a contract with the government to supply firewood and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, things got bad for him and, and he ended up dying of cancer. So, what did he do? Was there other things he got up to while he was here? Well, he was um, involved in the, uh, uh, the liberation of uh, escaped Irish uh, political prisoners. And that was? Uh, Thomas Maher okay. and um, John Mitchell. And uh, that's, that's only two that, that uh, there's books written about uh, both of those two convicts. And, and you were saying earlier to us that he, he rode them up to the... He, he rode them uh, from up the Tamer uh, right down and out to uh, Waterhouse Island, which is uh, uh, about 20 miles off the mouth off. of the Tamer River. So it was a fair, fair journey, and most of it was done by uh, hand. Was it rowing? Just by, row, by rowing. rowboat. It was done in the middle of the night. Oh my goodness! So he navigated the river in the middle of the night and got the people out to that island, where the boats then took them to America. I think is it you yes, were saying? Yes, they uh, uh, stayed. Some of them had to stay there for ten days or a fortnight until a boat came past to uh, pick them up. Wow. I see. And he himself uh, then got ill, I think you were saying, when he, was, he, he wasn't that old, and he, he died from cancer? He, he died from cancer, and uh, then the family uh, had to move off this property. And this wonderful property they had to let, let go. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, they moved over to the, the Ferno Group, uh, the, uh, the government offered cheap land uh, and the, the Farno the, group is a group of islands, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. It's, uh, Flinders Island is the largest island. Uh, there's 52 islands in the group. And uh, the, uh, the, the French were snooping around. 
and uh, the government uh, wanted all the islands uh, uh, habitated. Populated, yeah. And uh, so that uh, the French would be uh, warned off. Uh -huh. And uh, so his wife and, and, and son moved onto that onto one of those islands onto then. One of the island, Long Island, and uh, established the uh, the first shop and post office in the Ferno Group. Oh, enterprising people, so. Uh, and as, as well as uh, he had a, a trading catch which he uh, operated from the Ferno Group to Launceston. This was his son, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. supplies. Very good. And you discovered something recently, um, that there was a grave there. Yes, there's um, uh, a grave on Waterhouse Island that, that belongs to uh, James Barrett, my great-grandfather. Yeah. I've been searching for that grave for, for years and I stumbled across it by chance only last week. And you yourself live now, or lived out on those islands as well? I, I lived there until um, uh, last year, this time last year, and I've moved to La Trobe in Tassie. But you plan to go back on, on the island uh, again? Yes, yes, next month. So keep <laughs> keeping the Barrett spirit alive in the islands? <laughs> yes, yes, well, uh, um, I don't know how long for this time, but uh, uh, we're going back next month and see, see how it goes. Happens. And I know earlier today we were looking along the tree line there to see if we could find the remains of the old house. But you say it's it's somewhere there. We ha we didn't actually manage to find it, but it's right. It's somewhere there down it's, behind us. It's very overgrown. Yes. And uh, we can see uh, a couple of pine trees there if we look. And you said this was your first time back on this, this land. This, this is the first time I've been on this land. And what does that feel like for you? Uh, it's too long ago to, uh, to, if there had been a house or something there that we could have seen, it would have been different, I think. You'd have felt connected yeah. to it, yeah, yeah. Listen, Doug, thanks very much for bringing us here, and I know we're going to travel a little bit along further on the Tamar River and see some more interesting places. Okay, thank you. While you can hear Doug's disappointment there during the interview that we hadn't located the homestead, well, that evening Doug rang us to say that he actually had located the ruined homestead on an old map. It was there under our noses all the time. And that's the way it goes when you're on the Irish Ancestry Trail. Things pop up when you least expect them. Anyway, it was back to Hobart for us and on the next day to visit the Cascades female factory a few kilometres outside the town. As Mike and I waited and in that lovely sunny garden for the tour to begin, I had no idea what was in store for us. I'm standing in the female Cascades factory, a factory really being a workhouse, a penitentiary, prison for females in Hobart, just outside Hobart under Mount Wellington. And this location here for the factory was, uh, was originally a rum distillery and was bought by the government in 1826 uh, somewhere to house convicts, women convicts. So the women convicts were marched here in the middle of the night so as not to attract any attention from the locals or the sailors down at the port in Hobart. And they came here and spent uh, either as a first, second or third class prisoner their years here. They could be here for seven, 
14, 21 or life, depending on what their crime was. For a crime as little as stealing an egg, um, the guide told us there, there was a little girl picked up. She was 11 years and sent out here for stealing an egg. So it's been uh, almost traumatic really for us just even looking around the yards as they were called and this is the women's clothes just behind me here which would have been really heavy cotton. Their heads were shaved when they came here. They were put into these heavy cotton outfits and uh, marked with uh, C for convict. Um, and really it was very, very inhuman. And we're, we're here now on the final yard that we've been brought to and this is the nursery and as many as 70 75% of the children died here and of course they were never allowed here after the age of three and they were moved on to the orphanage. So it's, it's, it's quite shocking but I suppose one hopeful thing about it was at the end I, I remember reading that between one of five and one of seven Australians today are descended from these women who were, as our guide said, more sinned against than sinners. I found this one of the most difficult places to visit on the Australian Ancestry Trail. And following the paths of these female convicts was deeply upsetting. On a brighter note, it is good to see that nowadays Tasmanians have embraced their past and they no longer deny the strength and bravery of these women from their past. Ronan Gillespie's Irish Memorial on Hobart's Dockside immortalises these convict women in stone. Each statue tells its own story. I'm standing here in front of Ronan Gillespie's monument, Footsteps, in Hobart, in Tasmania. And this part of the island here would have been where the convicts would have first come in 1803. And 13,000 of them arrived between 1803 and 1853 onto this area here, which was then called Hunter Island. Now, Ronan, through his depiction of the women has shown us what it was like for the women that arrived here. The first woman that he shows in the statue is a young healthy woman. She would have done best here in the colonies. They would have been marched up to the Cascades female factory but if she was lucky she might have been put out for um, unpaid labour. Some mistress of a middle class house that picked her to do the constant work of cleaning um, minding children and feeding and the next woman though is a woman with worry and grief because she is an older woman and she would have done a little bit worse here in the colonies because just think if a household can get somebody for free a young girl why would they be her who was so much older the next lady and woman in the depicted in the statues is a woman with a baby in her arms now, she might have been momentarily relieved to step out here onto Hunter Island into a new life in Van Diemen's land, but she would have soon realised that her baby would have to be taken from her, weaned at six months regardless, and she would have been sent off to work as well somewhere, maybe never seeing her baby. Maybe she would have met somebody and he would have taken care of them. Then they would all have been, you know, together as a family again. And the little boy at the back, he depicts all the orphans that came out here. Now, they also were in prison in a way in that they were put into the orphan school when they arrived. Two thirds of those children never got out here to the colonies. If you were a child of a convict, you may never have got here. But if you did get here like this little boy, then your life was in the convict school until you were 10, 12, and then you were sent off to work. However, maybe your mother would come back for you and you would have a family life here. So it was very precarious life for all of the people 
that stepped off onto this island back in the 1800s. But what happened, I wonder, to the male convicts? Well, we couldn't leave Tasmania without visiting Port Arthur. And many of you advised us to take that trip before we headed out to Australia. Here, many male convicts ended up. It was a completely different experience to visiting the Cascades female prison. In the female prison, we were in a small visiting group in close quarters of the yards. But in Port Arthur, we were one of thousands visiting that day. However, you did still sense the isolation and loneliness of the men incarcerated there surrounded by the vast sea. A positive feature here we learnt was that the prisoners or the men were given a chance to better themselves and many learned trades with which to begin a new life in their new world. As you listen to the audio clip, imagine a huge expanse of water in front of me and behind my back the looming prison buildings. I'm standing in front of the penitentiary in Port Arthur, um, just out, about an hour and a half outside Hobart here in Tasmania. And Mike and I have come down here to see what prisoner convict life was like in the 1830s. This was the singular biggest prison around at that time for male convicts and especially for secondary offenders. In other words, if you re-offended, you were sent here to Port Arthur and you worked on logging or whatever work that, you, that they put you to at the time. It, you lived in chains, you slept in your chains, you ate in your chains. Um, the soldiers' lives here was not much better. I believe the guy told us that if you were a soldier up in Ho Hobart, at least you got rum and women, as they said, but down here you didn't get any of that. It was a really difficult place to escape from, which is, of course, what would be in a prisoner's mind. The seas were supposedly shark-infested, and then there was only an, you were surrounded by sea on all sides, and there was just a narrow inlet to get away, and then that was either guarded by soldiers or really bull mastiff dogs, which we saw on our way down here as well, a replica of one of those. So today it's quiet and it's beautiful and um, really, really lovely setting. Uh, a lot of people here. Seems to be one of the most popular places to visit in Tasmania. And I'm glad we got a chance to see the place and we will walk around now and go on the harbour and have a look at the Isle of the Dead, which is just out there in the water and uh, pass by the boys' prison. Young boys were sent out to the island just there as well beside us. We boarded the ferry and we did visit the boys' prison island and the Isle of the Dead, where all the dead from the prison were buried. But even in death, the guide was telling us there was a segregation as the poor and prisoners were buried off to one side of the island. The feeling of isolation and no escape was really brought home to us as we looked back over the sea to the prison complex of Port Arthur from the islands. What must it have been like for those prisoners? To raise our spirits on our return to Hobart, we visited a wonderful lavender shop on the outskirts of Port Arthur. Look out for the lavender ice cream and chocolate and soaps if you're ever down that way. Next morning, we bid farewell to Tasmania and flew on to Melbourne for our St. Patrick's Day meetup with Green Room members in PJ O'Brien's on the South Bank, all organised by our wonderful host, Des Deneen. The place was rocking and awash with green. And there we met Jim Milligan, who whisked us away on a tour of Melbourne the next day, where we chatted about his own family roots while visiting the Immigration Museum. 
Well, I've had the privilege of meeting with Jim Milligan today here in Melbourne, and he's brought us this very unusual building. And can you tell us where it is, Jim? Sure. We're actually in the Immigration Museum, which is now housed in what was the Customs House of Melbourne uh, back in the 19th century. And the, uh, the Customs House is right beside the Yarra River and at, at a particular point in the Yarra River called the Turning Basin because the tall ships would come up from the bay, from the ocean, into the bay, into the river and they could only come so far. And uh -huh. that uh -huh. so far was right outside here. And so that's why the Customs House was built just here, here. Because it was near the Turning Basin on the river. The ships could then turn back and go back down to the ocean. So as, as you say, it's now um, the Immigration Museum and uh, a great use for an otherwise unused old building. And Jim, would you class yourself as an immigrant to this country? <laughs> With an accent like this? <laughs> I most certainly am. So you, you must have a story there. So where, where did you yourself come from? Well, uh, the, uh, I guess the interesting thing is that my name is Milligan which is Irish, but I'm Scottish. Mm -hmm. But my wife, Mary, her surname is Greg, which is Scottish, but she's Irish. So we're a real Celtic mixture. Excellent. And uh, I met Mary in Dublin, and we got married there and had our first couple of kids there, and went back to Scotland for a few years. But in 1980, we came to Melbourne. Melbourne so we've been here nearly 38 years, and uh, I can honestly say it's a decision we've never regretted. And you've had some memorable moments in this building as well, I believe, in the long room over there. Something special happened a few years ago. Yes, yeah, we did. Uh, given that this is a, a bit of an Irish thing, I don't even know whether you'd want to know that we, <laughs> that we actually we met... We want to know. <laughs> we actually met Queen Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh uh, in the long room just here to our left. Uh, so you and your wife were picked with many other... Yeah, yeah, um, uh, we were picked couples. with... 200 other couples from every nation on the face of the earth because Melbourne is a very multicultural society yes. with people from, I think, somewhere around 180 countries and territories around the world. Um, and we were picked randomly because we were members of the museum uh, to meet the Queen and Duke. And uh, it was a very pleasant uh, and actually funny experience, but that's, that's for another day. Another time. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Jim. And what, what about the brick out the back as well? Well, oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. you as, forgot to tell me that. That's an I, interesting one. I forgot one. to tell you about yes. the brick. Um, the Immigration Museum, as a means of raising funds, offered its members the opportunity to have their names inscribed on a stainless steel panel. And uh, if you go out now to the rear courtyard of the museum, you will see that the walls of the courtyard and indeed the, the pools on the floor of the courtyard are covered in the names of migrants from all over the world, including Jim and Mary Milligan. And you're so, one of them. We're one of them. So it's a nice place for our kids and our grandchildren and other generations to come to come back and say, that was my papa and nana. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jim. Thank you. My pleasure. Our time in Melbourne City ended with a lovely cool drink on the banks of the river at sunset. But we were off again with an early start next day in the company of Desdenine. We travelled outside Melbourne this time into gold mining country and along the trail of Des's own Irish ancestors. First Des took us to a small town of Gisborne 
near to where his Irish ancestors farmed after their arrival in Australia. So I'm here with Des Deneen on the Irish Ancestry Trail in Australia and we have the wonderful sound of the kookaburra in the background there. The laughing, laughing kookaburra. Laughing at us, I think. <laughs> so Des, tell us a little bit about where we are here. Where are we? Uh, we're in the old town township of Gisborne, which is uh, about, uh, about 40 minutes out of uh, Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And it's on the way to uh, Bendigo. So the original uh, gold rush days, the diggers would walk uh, on uh, on this road to through Gisborne on their way to uh, Bendigo goldfields. So we're in the go are we in the goldfield region now? So not or? so much just here. This is more of a gra uh, like a farming area uh, on the way to Bendigo, which is probably another could be another three quarters of an hour or an hour's drive. Okay. And uh, this area just here, why, why are we so here? This is the old courthouse in Gisborne, which uh, they're now using as a historical centre. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, most of the uh, records for this whole area, including Bullingbrook, where my, my uh, family settled, and then a lot of other Limerick families settled. Um, uh, all the records are sort of uh, kept through, the, through this historical society here. And we're talking about the Deneens coming over from Ireland uh, in the 1830s or so around that time? No, a little bit later than that. They were more like the 1850s. Um, most of those families were, were sort of post-famine uh, farmers and uh, they spent some time in Melbourne, probably quite about five, five or more years in Melbourne, sort of working in dairies and uh, whatever they could. And then eventually the land uh, opened up for selection in the 1860s with the, the Land Acts. Uh, they decided all the extra people who were out here digging for gold needed to uh, do farming. Okay, and and uh, I, I noticed that this wall behind has some plaques with Irish names right, on it. Murphy, right. Barrett, Fitzgerald, Calnan, but there's one here with Deneen. Yes, which I'm responsible for. So about 20 years ago, they decided they'd have a Pioneers uh, Memorial sort of wall for different families to commemorate their, um, their ancestry. So. I, yeah, I, I contributed the Deneen uh, one and a couple of others, I think, at the time. So, uh, will you will you read out the what you've written here for the Deneens, uh, Michael, or will I will I read a few? Yeah, yeah. Michael and Catherine, and also John and Margaret, settlers of Bolingaruk. Yes. from the 1860s until the deaths of their respective unmarried children, Ned in 1952 and Jack in, in 1946. Yes, well, uh, um, actually it says, uh, was there a Thomas there mentioned? Was no, no, no well, they, actually had, they actually had three sons and uh, the oldest son, Thomas, died of typhoid when he was 20, 21 years of age, which would have been, a, uh, which would have been really, really hard for the family. So there's two two brothers left, and um, one was my gr uh, grandfather, and uh, he he's, um, he was fairly successful as a farmer, and uh, eventually moved on to another area at, uh, uh, in the in the Kurirup area. So um, the, the 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 unmarried son um, Ned, he stayed there till a very very elderly age, uh, and he never married. So. Uh, the last of the Deneens were in Bullingbrook, uh, I think up to the 1960s, so there was about a hundred years of Deneen uh, Deneens in, history. In, in, in that Bullingbrook area. Yeah. Well, but the, the interesting part about that is uh, most of these Irish families were all, uh, and all and, and, uh, they all knew each other and went to school with each other in uh, Brough and Loch area in uh, County Limerick. And came out and here then out here together. together. I'm fairly sure that uh, the Michael Deneen, my great-grandfather, followed his Fitzgerald cousins who uh, came out as a full family and they were, they were from Brough. 
So uh, that, that's what brought him out here basically on his own. Okay, yeah, yeah. lovely. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Des, for showing us this place. My, my pleasure. Yes, thank you. So it was back in the car and onto the actual Deneen farm in Bulangaruk. So, Des, we are in some wonderful farmland here. Who, who farmed here? Well, this was the um, area where most of the Limerick family settled uh, in the 1860s, um, uh, uh, coming out from uh, the Loch uh, uh, Bruff area, the Fitzgeralds and the Carrolls from Hospital, and um, a lot of the families, including the Deneen uh, family. And is this still called Gisborne here? or no, is this, this is actually called Bullingarook. Bullingarook, okay. Uh, and uh, it's uh, halfway, it's sort of up in the um, mountainous area of uh, where there's a lot of state forests and a lot of um, uh, you know, very, very largely forested area, and very difficult to clear for farming land and very large trees. So is it Ned Deneen, is it you said you're... you're uh, my my great-grandfather was Michael Deneen and he's... Um, there's two, two Deneen families that settled here. They both came from the Loch Gur area. And uh, they followed the Fitzgeralds and uh, there was a very strong Irish family. Practically every road and... Uh, around this around area. This area is either Carroll Road, Dunn Road, Fitzgerald Road, Deneen Road. And I saw we saw Deneen Road <laughs> just along there. Exactly. Yeah. This yeah. is now in Deneen Road now and we're overlooking the, the farmland that uh, the, 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 the Deneen settled and um, they, were, they were actually the very first settlers. Uh, the, the, all, all that Irish group were, were the first to settle this area and they'd have to come along literally peg it out, <coughs> peg out their allotment. Yes. <coughs> and um, and then they would uh, have to farm that uh, land and improve it over a number of years. Until so they take down all the trees, clear, clear the, the land. Clear the land and grow crops and, uh, and uh, eventually say that they've done an, uh, enough to pay the one pound per acre to the government for a, a, a permanent um, lease, of what they call a crown land lease. And so when they got that lease, did they stay long after that? Yeah, well, the Deneens were here for, um, and most of those Irish families lasted till at least uh, the 1950s and 60s, even right up to the 1980s. There were still a few left at that stage. So there was over 100 years of really Irish farming in this particular area. They had their own Catholic schools, they, um, uh, and they basically just self-funded those schools and the teacher. Built their own school, uh, got their own, their own teacher in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They had their own teacher, which they paid for until the government actually built a school, and then they eventually transferred their their, their pupils to the state school. And uh, did your Deneen stay here, or did they move on from yeah, here? Yeah, well, my, my grandfather uh, had uh, most of his family here. Um, the first five children were born in this area, and then, um, uh, but then they moved to the, a new, newly settled area in the Kurirup uh, Swamp area, which is a great, they call, used to call it the Great Swamp, and it was impenetrable, basically, and uh, the government decided that in the 1890s that um, they could use unemployed uh, uh, people to, to uh, for labour to drain that great swamp into uh, farming land, and uh, so when it did uh, eventually get drained, uh, my grandfather went there in 1907, and uh, he was due to he actually selected the land at the Kurirup uh, in 1902, and his youngest daughter fell into a, an open fire and got or got scalded badly, 
uh, from a, a fire, a bad fire burn. So they weren't able to move to their new selection for another couple of years. And so they were in Bullingbrook for a bit longer than they. And then 19, 1907, they uh, moved on then to. And my father was born in 1908 at the, in the new, in the new, newly uh, new settlement of Career Up. And his name was. It was Harry Deneen. Harry Deneen. Henry Harry Deneen, named after his great, his grandfather. Okay. Yeah, so the Deneens were here for well over, uh, and then Ned, the the unmarried uh, brother, continued on here until the 1960s, and he died at a, a very a very old age, about 98 or something. And uh, that was about it. it was two, there were two two Deneen families, and um, yeah, that was that was where they basically. Uh, uh, ended up in the 1960s, as far as the Deneen name goes. Here. But we've still got a road named after us. Yes, so you've got something to remember the Deneens by, yes. and such a wonderful place to look around at. Yes. Fa thanks, Des. It's fantastic here. We finished up that day in the gold mine town of Ballarat and the infamous Eureka Stockade Monument. So here, Des fills us in on what happened as the miners made a strike for their rights all those years ago. Well, Des, we're here in Ballarat, where um, the biggest gold mining nugget was found, I think, wasn't it, in the Victoria? Yeah, we had two main areas of uh, gold in Victoria, and that was Bendigo and Ballarat. And uh, both were very, very significant as far as bringing wealth, uh, bigger wealth for the colony of Victoria. And also, uh, basically, uh, these, these gold mining towns have very very good um, streetscapes and uh, prominent uh, historic buildings. But the monuments that we are here standing up now today? Yes, yeah, so this is the Eureka Stockade uh, Memorial. Eureka Stockade Memorial. Eureka, yes. The, the, um, the miners uh, who were based in the, the Eureka uh, diggings uh, rose up against the authority of uh, the government, which is very heavy-handed in collecting uh, gold uh, license fees on a regular basis, and uh, they're basically a lot of the uh, uh, mines from around about Creswick and other outlying areas uh, mm -hmm. all came to join the miners in protesting at uh, uh, at the Eureka Stockade. They built a rough sort of fence stockade uh, and rose a special flag called the Eureka flag. Uh, in uh, in protests and uh, basically were very well armed and very well prepared against the authorities. Mm -hmm. um, but they uh, authorities were quite uh, keen to uh, move in on a on a Sunday morning when most of the diggers were asleep. Oh, so they and were surprise they were, a surprise attack when they, they were asleep. Very much a surprise attack. So there were quite heavy heavy casualties. And um, basically, uh, it was a big, it was it was a loss in, in one regard to the uprising. But uh, the whole of uh, Victoria was so outraged by the by the numbers of people, number of uh, miners that were shot dead by the police, and the way they did it, that it really did change uh, the whole mindset of Victoria. Peter Laylor led the uh, the uprising, and he was a digger, and um, he he. Um, he was wound, wounded during the battle, but escaped. Peter Lawler, is it you Yeah, said? Peter Lawler, yeah, 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 or Layla. And he escaped and, and wounded, and he was able to uh, be hidden by local people uh, so the authorities couldn't find him for, for I think it was up to, up to about four, four to six months. Wow. And uh, he found a doctor who amputated one arm uh, while he was in, in hiding. 
and uh, so eventually, uh, he's, I think he, I, I don't think he was really arrested. He just uh, basically came forward uh, when there was so much protest against the government with uh, uh, heavy handedness, mm -hmm. and uh, he. Um, uh, he was really he was sentenced to I think a short term in jail with the, with the, with the other key leaders, but uh, they were released eventually, and um, it really did change the whole, whole thinking of the government. And in fact, Peter Laylor was able then to actually be a prominent member of Parliament. My goodness! So uh, he had a really so colourful, a very colourful career. career. So yes. so it's quite hard to imagine, isn't it? Really, as we're standing here today in this wonderful peaceful park. With the monument that this this actually reflects a period in history, which was the birth would it have been of Australian democracy? Democracy, yeah. Yeah. Quite. yeah. It couldn't be a more fitting end to our Australian ancestral trail than in that town in Ballarat at the Eureka Stockade, the town that's remembered as the birthplace of Australian democracy. It seems that the struggle for a better way of life continued for the Irish and their fighting spirits followed them on their journey to new lands in Australia. And now I must offer a special thanks to Anne Keating, Linda and Lee Scott, Doug Barrett and Des Deneen for joining us on the Australian Ancestry Trail. And thank you too to all our Green Room members who met us along the way, especially all those Green Room members who travelled to celebrate St. Patrick's Day with us in Melbourne, and the many friends who joined us to show us their part of Australia. It feels like we've come full circle in connecting with the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those who left by linking the story back to their roots in Ireland. I know that Anne and Des have made the journey back to the homelands of their Irish ancestors many times, and maybe someday you will too. On behalf of our Green Room members and Letter from Ireland listeners, we were honoured to be invited into the homes and the hearts of the Australians we met and to record and bring back the stories of those Irish early emigrants as told to us by their great-grandchildren who are now proud Australians and, of course, Tasmanians. Remember, listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's podcast. Let us know what you think and view the show notes on this show at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 212. Slán. Just before we go, thanks again for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we invite you to check out our special membership area called The Green Room. You can find full details of The Green Room at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room and remember there green room is all one word the green room is the essential resource for anyone at any stage in researching their irish heritage it's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and connect the pieces in your irish ancestry puzzle you get access to online genealogists extensive research tools quick win training as well as member only access to johngrenham.com and a supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anyone starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So do come and join us at aletterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Well, that's it for me. And I'll be back next week with another installment of The Letter from Ireland Show. Look forward to chatting with you then. Slán. 
Karina.